Hi, and welcome to episode 24 of the Deeper Current podcast. I am your host, Hannah Ruth Dyson, founder of Saucy Gathering and Women Change World. And once again, such a pleasure to be here with you today. I am so excited. I am joined by an amazing friend, advisor, consultant, <laughs> collaborator, inspiration. You may or may not have heard of her, but her name is Natalia Bonilla, and she is an incredible international journalist, documentarian. She's made some amazing documentaries and has a magazine called Lumina Online. She helps entrepreneurs with social enterprises and just an amazing woman. I'm so honored to have her here today. Welcome to the podcast, Natalia. <laughs> oh, Hannah, thank you so much for this invitation. I feel extremely, extremely honored to be here. Um, and thank you for that introduction. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's, it's, Natalia is one of those people that whenever I have a conversation with, I often think, oh, wow, if this was recorded right now, so many people would benefit. And I, Honestly, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done without Natalia these last, I think it's been... Two years now. Three years? Wow, it's crazy thinking about uh, time. Yeah, and I I genuinely don't know anyone <laughs> who could um, take on my work with such an incredible um, presence, awareness, like the way she understands, for example, soul seed gathering on all levels, spiritual, emotional. So <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's like um, she's one of the greatest yeah, gifts that came to me. She reached out. I had one of those uh, no idea why why I want to work with her, but I had this feeling in my heart and I was like, oh, that's my that's my telltale sign. Like that's when I know I'm on track. <laughs> and I've had so many ups and downs on this journey and Tatalia has been there throughout it all. And yeah, um, we've become yeah beautiful friends and I'm honestly so honored to watch her work out in the world. And yeah, Natalia, how how are you doing right now? I know we talk all the time, we talk every week, but yeah, how are you doing in general through through this strange time? Like how are you feeling overall? Um, well, right now I'm about to burst in tears. <laughs> I'm like um yeah, going back in time is is incredible how much we have grown as you know, women, as people, as entrepreneurs. And I feel very blessed to also have found you along this w journey. And um, um, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm very overwhelmed uh, currently um, in terms of the quarantine and these spe special times. Um, I found myself, you know, um, with the task of stepping into what I came here to do and not backing down and it's been a very strong exercise to you know discipline myself to believe and act upon what I'm here to do you know my my mission um, because there is no more distractions and 
with you know social media and laptop and you know working from home one can say no there are many distractions yeah but they are less than if the whole world was you know uh, functioning as before um, so I do find myself now um, you know getting more into tune with my rhythm understanding what are my you know, my boycott, <laughs> my ways of boycotting myself and, um, you know, pushing myself, like cheerleading myself to, you know, do something that I'm, you know, that, that I feel passionate about. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm at that crossroads at this time. Mm, and what, what is your mission? Like what, what does that like succinctly come through as? My mission, my, <laughs> well, I have, I have a mission um, to report the world. Um, mm -hmm. I love journalism. That's my main passion. Um, but I also didn't want to do like empty journalism. I do want to bring visibility to women around the world, their stories, their enterprises, their social impact. And I think that is extremely necessary in this world the more that I came to understand my own journey as a woman that I you know recognize my womanhood that I recognize my lineage the more that I learn about other women's um, journeys and the way that they decide to become entrepreneurs all the myths, all the pitfalls that they experience along the way trying to make a difference in the communities they serve, the more that I feel driven and passionate to bring that work into light. And um, we need to hear those stories. Women need to be heard. Women need to be seen. And women need also to feel valued and recognized by our own selves. And um, it's so interesting. Yesterday, I had, um, I mean, May 14th, <laughs> we had, a, 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 you know, a, a talk that I was giving here in Mexico um, to a collective or like a small collective of uh, female um, international relations university students here in Mexico. And they wanted me to talk about feminism and world affairs, which is like, one of my focus areas in terms of research and one of the things that they were telling me is that you know we we do not feel that our opinions matter we need more spaces to be heard and throughout my journey as an entrepreneur as a consultant for other women that are trying to you know um is highlight their work and want to share it with the world the more i'm convinced that these spaces are necessary, you know, it's, we need to hear each other. And I thank you, Hannah, for creating this podcast, because we need the kind of conversations that you're bringing to the table, no more superficial work, no more, you know, um, fussy stuff that we take it as entertainment, like deep feminine can also be you know, fun. You just need to embrace the journey. And I think that you're providing with this podcast and your and different enterprises, you know, pathways for us to rediscover ourselves in a responsible manner. So, yeah, I think that would be 
id. <laughs> mm, yeah, thank you for saying that. And yeah, I so admire your work and, and how you walk through the world and, and just creating these bridges, which I think are so important at this time. I've learned so much through you what it's like to be in the world of uh, international journalism. And I've had friends as well who've been in that world. And I've <laughs> always found it like... Um, like the thought of going out and doing war journalism or reporting on some of these intense things, it became like the thought became too overwhelming for me. But you saw firsthand which stories would get chosen and which ones would not and who gets to decide and also how you got marginalized again and again, uh, being a Puerto Rican woman and, you know, being in this space where you have, you know, valuable stories to share. Is that what you'd say kind of drove you more and more into the more, um, you know, creating your own media platform and taking this other path kind of away from the mainstream sort of system? In part, like I think um, whenever I trace back, this is uh, an interesting exercise that I had to do in this quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> One of the blissful moments was um, that a friend of mine was uh, telling me that if if I continued, you know, Revista Latitudes or Latitudes magazine, which was my first media enterprise um, that I founded in 2009 in Puerto Rico, we would have been, you know, commemorating the anniversary, the 10th anniversary here in this year to 2020. Mm. And um, I was very shocked because... I looked back like, oh, yeah, like we could have done it. And I felt like happy. And at the same time, I felt sad, you know, like all these emotions because, you know, I had to close that first enterprise. Um, what drove me back then are not the same reasons that are driving me now with Lumina. Um, although I do have the same um, desire the reasons have changed and um, I found that just lately, like a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> um, I, I started like, you know, what, what was this uh, small young girl um, from, you know, a rural um, city in Puerto Rico trying to bring to the table back then and what really drove me to launch my first media enterprise in 2009 was all these you know, uh, no's <laughs> that I received from many um, editors when I was uh, doing internships in several media outlets. I mean, Puerto Rico is a small island and it also has a small media landscape. Um, back then, there was this uh, monopoly of uh, media um, that was, you know, taking... Um, you know, everybody had to do internships there if you were a university a student, sorry. And one of the things that um, I started uh, experiencing is that whenever I wanted to, you know, bring the international element, whenever I wanted to talk about international affairs or the place that Puerto Rico had on international affairs, they started saying me like, you know, very disrespective comments and trying to instill on me fear. Like, for example, oh, who are you to, you know, report the world? You're not Christiana Mampur. You, you are not white. You are not wealthy. 
who are you to try to do something different? The best that you can do is, you know, work at El Nuevo Día, which was the main newspaper back then. Um, you cannot aspire to do something more. You know, w uh, women correspondents do are not um, a thing. You know, it's not a trend. It's difficult if you ever enter international affairs. And there was always like this, no, 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 no. I was like, why? And... I started seeing this trend where all of them were male editors telling me what I could and couldn't do. But what I really was more frustrated back then was this lack of Puerto Rican view of international affairs. Because every international news that we were receiving in the main newspapers, in the TV channels, etc., was coming from news agencies. So we're talking about, you know, Associated Press. We're talking about uh, FNU's agency, which I later worked with. <laughs> I was a correspondent for FNU's agency um, years afterwards. Um, but back then, it was very sad to see that all the information on the world that we were consuming, that we were receiving, was coming from, you know, American view or the United States view of the world or France view of the world, you know, like former imperialistic countries. <laughs> and I mean, I started, you know, developing this understanding of how the colonial mindset was affecting the media landscape. I even um, did my bachelor's degree dissertation on the on, on this mindset, the, this colonial mindset which was preventing the media, the local media, to give voices to Puerto Ricans because we did not have a voice. I mean, our way of creating journalism, even local journalism, what was happening inside the island, was very much the American view of Puerto Rico. We had to follow the same guidelines. We have not our own knowledge of how to report our own country. And that was, for me, horrible <laughs> to discover, to research upon. I launched uh, Revista Latitudes back then with the desire to bring a space to university students like me, women, most of them, more than 20 women, university young women um, that were studying journalism, that were studying English literature, that were studying um, social affairs, gender, international relations, politics, to work voluntarily, you know, like report the world, create a news report about what was happening in India, about what was happening in um, Africa, and invite them to seek those interviews, to expose them to sources outside of Puerto Rico. I mean, I was not interested in learning what XY professor from the University of Sydney was thinking about what was happening in Zambia. It's like, no, like, why cannot you interview someone from Zambia? You know, write an email, figure out how can you reach those people and you know, talk to them. The same here. Why don't you interview a professor or a, um, a, a, an organization from Puerto Rico that works there? You know, like expand a bit the, the, the reach. And um, the more, I mean, that, that enterprise uh, continued for over three years. 
all voluntary work. I was not thinking about a business model. I was not thinking about, you know, profiting about it because I just wanted to have a place where I could do what I really wanted to do. And then I did my master's degree in international relations in, uh, uh, in the United Kingdom at the University of York. And when I came back to Puerto Rico, I decided to launch the second enterprise, which was Grupo Latitudes. And with Grupo Latitudes, it was similar to uh, the magazine, I mean, similar name, but the only difference was that we were incorporating a documentary production house. Um, that was after my first documentary, um, which I did as a co-director, but I did not have a production house. Um, so this, the second enterprise that I launched had it, had its own um, uh, documentary production, but then I started having um, many other, um, how is it, um, blocks or problems with people um, mm -hmm. there. Um, in terms of, you know, many challenges, um, you know, a woman, a female entrepreneur, a female founder, I was 23 years old, trying to create a new model on international affairs in Puerto Rico, you know, a groundbreaking thing for them. Um, you know, the monopoly and the mainstream media was against that kind of organization coming out. So I started receiving threats. Um, I started um, receiving a lot of no's from the government that was not mm, happy that we were doing this kind of, you know, uh, research. Like on Cuba, for example, we did a documentary on the Cuban exile community in Puerto Rico, but they did not want it to come to light because back then with, you know, the Obama administration, Um, there was this, um, you know, the, the ease of restrictions to Cuba um, and Puerto Rico, which was uh, one of the main sectors, is tourism. And it started receiving, um, how is it? Uh, uh, it, it started um, um, receiving what it was that, you know, the main tourists were going to Cuba instead of Puerto Rico. So that... It scared a lot the Puerto Rican government, so they did not want it to give any kind of forum, any kind of um, uh, a space to anything related to Cuba or research about Cuban people. And that was very hard <laughs> um, to, to launch, even universities. We're talking about universities as well. Um, so yeah, I just dropped it in 2014 um, because my main desire was to continue traveling the world, you know, reporting for my uh, media company. Um, but it wasn't possible. And I myself was experiencing other issues, you know, with my family, with how I was not feeling completely at home in the, on the island. So Uh, going forward to today, <laughs> to finish this story, this is long story. <laughs> in, the, in 2020, 2019, um, with Lumina, I mean, I kept this blog. Um, I kept interviewing people, but not in a consistent basis. And um, I, I started doing um, reports and freelance uh, work for you know, Public Radio International, for The Guardian, for El País in Spain, for Women Under Siege, and all these big uh, organizations. But then 
it, I just felt like I needed something else. And um, I, I, there were some stories that were being shut down and that were solutions-based journalism that I wanted to continue working on it. And I, the more that I, you know, with um, the a documentary map, Ser Mujer en Latin America in 2017, that I started working on that research project, the more that I came to understand how women were actually making the change that we wish to see on the world. And um, that's what I wanted to do with the magazine once I started um, taking it more seriously in 2019, um, which came after healing a lot um, with journalism um, because I, I fell off the wagon. I was like, this is, you know, war journalism. This is a cycle, a vicious cycle. It has helped, you know, I was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. I was experiencing a lot of angst. And um, I started doing consulting work um, to, you know, help uh, women entrepreneurs, you know, create a better communication campaign, have a better marketing strategy, etc. because I do believe that women were doing the difference. It's just they did not have the tools to communicate. But then 2019, I was like, yeah, but that's not enough. I still want to continue reporting and giving that visibility. So that's how, I mean, right now the, the desire is the same, but my reason is different than back then because back then I was kind of healing or experiencing what it was, you know, the colonial mindset. And now I'm like more like, what is Natalia's mindset rather than my carrying the weight of my country situation on my shoulders and um yeah <laughs> I, I know it's long so <laughs> I don't know what no, are your thoughts no it's so it's so beautiful and powerful and to hear you it's like yeah it sounds um so simple really what we need more in journalism and in the world is that humanity that connection to real people's stories the feminine uh you know perhaps way of doing things which is far more person to person and connected and it is so so lacking I think in the international media space it just um it does feel like constant war and and this all the way the language um is sort of put together everything is feels like oh this just is the way it is and when we look really underneath the surface we realize no it's not the way it is and and we really have to be careful with how we're influenced and I think this is generally why a lot of people are turned off from news and media and I I came from that background of you know thinking it was the most important thing to be well informed and then uh, just working for a short time in a documentary company and just working one documentary after the next, I felt also like <laughs> in a very short space of time, like like completely traumatized. Like I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do with this information. It felt so debilitating, like the worst of humanity and and just I, I didn't know like what my part was in it. And so I had to kind of go off and take my own sort of journey spiritually, personally, emotionally to kind of connect. Um, a lot like you say, like what is like 
What's my perspective? What is my way of doing things? And it's really been this process, I think, step by step and having these conversations and, and meetings and working with people like you that gives me more the confidence like, yeah, this is a different way. And this is also as worthwhile and deserving as any other way of doing things. Um, and in fact, it's like clearly uh, so necessary at this time to have a different way of communicating world affairs. I think generally people want to feel like they are uh, kind of helpful. They could, they're, they're staying connected. They know what's going on. They want to feel informed and so on. But then uh, we don't even realize the trauma of just taking in daily news and the way it's communicated and the way it can make us feel. And um, yeah, I so admire that about you and and just lovely to hear your journey from like the very beginning wanting to really do things in a different way like uh, and just bring that humanity and question I've always questioned that also like where does the news <laughs> come from and I think it's a huge question at this time like especially with this whole conversation around fake news it's like well who decides what is fake and who decides who is the authority and who decides, you know, and it, and you realize there have been these gatekeepers for so long. And um, yeah, there's huge questions about freedom of speech right now and, and just alternative viewpoints being taken down from the internet. And uh, we don't all have to agree with everything, but I think we need to be able to hear things. And I've, I mean, I've learned so much from you just recently about peace journalism versus war journalism and I I wonder if you could share with all of us just like a sort of overview and 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 the ethos of peace journalism and how you and also your your way of doing things Natalia's way of um, sharing <laughs> news yeah well it was very interesting hearing you because um you know, when I was hearing you I was trying to identify my moment I did not felt the same that you did, like uh, when you were as, um, doing the documentary work, um, I was kind of feeding off the energy of the industry. I was, you know, very willing to do what it takes to become, you know, the best journalist because that was the brainwash that they gave us during, you know, the universities. Like if you want to become the best journalist, if you want to be seen, you know, in United States, you know, I was never chiming in the factor of gender and I was never chiming in the factor that the industry itself was this empty vacuum. I, I, I was not chiming it in until I started understanding in 2017 when I was covering gender violence with this freelance work, I started understanding that the vacuum was so... Uh, they not care about humans at all. And I, I, that's one of the reasons to answer your question on peace journalism, why I decided that in, in, we needed to change the shift. And I mean, currently we are living in this post-truth era where we, you know, truth is so relative to everybody and where what you're saying is very dangerous, right? We don't know who's legitimizing what and for which reasons. Um, but I do understand that the media industry has fell off the wagon of economic interests. 
worldwide. We're not talking about a specific country. Is this is happening worldwide, and we have lost our way of connecting to each other as people and seeing ourselves as you know persons speaking to another person, and that's what peace journalism wants to bring to the table. Um, for many years, we, I mean, since the beginning of the print version, you know, like um, Gutenberg, the, the print um, machine, um, it was used as propaganda measures. So whenever we started seeing the beginnings of journalism, it was always, you know, official sources. Whatever the government said was being reported on newspapers, was being reported on media channels, etc. What happened along the way is that You know, people in power started instilling violence in these contents. And in the 20th century, it became more prominent with, you know, the growth of the media industry, the growth of, you know, different channels of uh, information and, um, you know, the, the, the appearance of the TV, the, the, the t television, um, you know, people needed more um uh how is it We, the the people in power started to engage in new strategies to entertain people now they were able to manipulate people's perception or public opinion more easily through the video that it was for example through print version or through um radio for example um however It wasn't until the Vietnam War that um, uh, peace academics that were studying, you know, conflict resolution, that were studying, um, you know, peace building practices and peace processes around the world, started seeing a problem, specifically after the Vietnam War. Why the Vietnam War? There's this... Um, phenomenon effect that is called the CNN effect. The CNN effect is connected, you know, to the big media outlet of CNN, but it was called the repetition 24-7 of news cycle. Using news as entertainment, but using, you know, the more gruesome and the more violent the news, <laughs> the more it sells or the more it created Um, uh, or form a, a person's opinion. So the academics, the peace uh, academics in the, in the peace field um, around the world, specifically Norway, started understanding that media was having a huge impact on the way culture was being shaped. And one of the top academics uh, of Norway, which was at back then Johan Galtun, started developing this method, method, methodology <laughs> um, called peace journalism. And one of the things that I found very interesting about his work is that he, he was very known for conflict transformation and conflict resolution kind of you know, research. And he started seeing that the cycle of violence, which, you know, has several stages in, um, in, a, in a circle, it has several stages, um, was not being interrupted. Media was being used as a weapon to continue the cycles of violence. 
We're not talking about, you know, world affairs. We're talking about every country. And this is very bad because, of course, there are other... Currently, there are countries that are more peaceful than others and that have been developing cultures of peace. But most of the countries, even nowadays, continue reproducing the cycles of violence because it benefits the system. And peace journalism came to become, a, I mean, it, it became known as peace journalism and when, when it's truly about doing responsible journalism. And responsible journalism ent entitles that you do not only report on the symptoms of a problem, but rather try to understand its causes. What is causing the problem and what are the solutions that, can, um, that are being worked that need to be highlighted to solve that problem? And um, it's very interesting because once I started understanding peace journalism, I mean, I did a, a postgraduate diploma on conflict and peace journalism in Barcelona. And one of the things that I was experiencing doing that diploma is that for more than four months in, it was a six month program, four months in, we were only focusing on war journalism. War journalism is what you see today on the news and with this pandemic is what is being used. Why war journalism is so effective, it simplifies the problem. It's, it really focuses on us versus them kind of rhetoric, on good versus bad, on this is the right thing, this is the bad thing. You know, it simplifies the message and that's why it's so powerful more than peace journalism because peace journalism is not about you know, talking only to the elites. It's not only about, you know, reporting what the government is saying or what this dude is saying. No, it's more about understanding who we are as people, who we are as a society. And that's why it's so powerful and also why it's so threatening to engage in peace journalism because of the following. We are living currently in times where we want things to be quick. I want to be informed quick. I don't want to read a 400 page story. I don't want to hear, you know, three hours of the conversation of what's, why things are happening. You know, people want small doses of information to, you know, what you were saying, keep being informed, you know, being well informed. Um, but we, we grew accustomed to it also because of the rise of technology, the rise of, you know, different demands in the market where we are living in some cities where the life it moves so fast that we want things by yesterday. We don't want to, you know, think about a problem and try to figure out solutions, etc. So peace journalism is a challenge to incorporate. Because it asks the journalists and also its editors, etc., to not see a problem in a reactive form, but rather in a preventive one and also in a solutions-based uh, approach, with a solutions-based approach, where we start, you know, talking to all the different parts, the different uh, parts of a country, instead of demonizing the other, instead of dehumanizing a concept, instead of saying, yes, this is, you know, uh, playing the judge <laughs> of who's right and who's wrong and what needs to be done. 
like for example in this COVID-19 we see the work journalism taking form in the way that media has covered this crisis is focused on death rates is focused on the rise of contag contagion of of con uh, of cases of confirmed cases um it has been focusing mostly on the bad and official forces because uh, sources it's because the government is saying that you should do this And you have, for example, you know, these me big media tech companies like Facebook, YouTube, Google, censoring whatever kind of other information from alternative media that is not correlated to what the government is saying. Because, you know, this is an unknown um, virus and we don't want, you know, fear to be spread We don't want this information to be spread, but why? You're trying to control the rhetoric when this is not something about what is happening to us. This is something that is happening, you know, for all of us. It's, 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 a, it's a, a pandemic that is a democratized kind of pandemic, not something that is instilled upon us and we should follow it as it was an order, you know? Um, so, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> mm. Wow, I, I felt emotional hearing you because it's just taking it in. It's like, even if, say, we don't ever engage in the news, in the media, we are still influenced by this because it's influenced just society and the way we even talk about things um, in general. Like... I could think of so many examples, but I, I'm really grateful that back at university, I did this one module in psychology and it was interesting how she kind of took it into, um, she she clearly was really passionate to get us to see uh, the, the incredible bias and prejudice within news and media. And it totally opened up my eyes and realized how psychologically we are influenced by all of this. And for example, in the UK, I grew up with the BBC and the BBC is meant to be, you know, public and it's meant to stay impartial. And she would make us go through um, like two main news, news stories. One was about the Iraq war and she showed us so clearly how the footage was always at a distance. It was always bombs going off. And so you had this complete detached sense of this war there were no people there were no faces there was um, we're so used to seeing uh, like war films that we're, we're used to seeing these images of bombs going off and so it is like entertainment and she um, I remember her explaining so well like yeah this is like how we remain detached and how we don't really feel engaged with what But happens also, with this yeah that's also you know a war culture yeah yeah Totally, and I and we we're just used to it. And then she also gave the example of uh, student protests, but they just were focusing on, uh, you know, the few people who join any protest to create trouble, and how <laughs> the BBC. It was so shocking to see how they were completely, you know, clearly against this protest happening where students were just uh, trying to, you know, say it wasn't fair, the increase in their student loans, in the, in the student debt. 
And uh, yeah, just so interesting to witness. And then, yeah, how this influences all of us. And and when I had that documentary job, it was like I had to transcribe actual like individual torture experiences. And I, I, I mean, that was just one part of many distressing things but I remember that was a day that I was just I mean I was crying every day and I I was really crying with this because it was like women you know from Chile telling like what had happened to them and I was in shock and I remember my boss at the time saying uh, well you need to get over it you I mean you can't cry every day like we need to figure it out and I knew right then I had to leave and I just realized okay this path is for um remaining desensitized and I and I think that's also how you know I believe in the good of of humans but when we're part of a system and a part of a way of doing things we become so desensitized and uh likely it Many journalists and many people in media are traumatized and are constantly re-traumatizing themselves. And but yeah, I this think is it's also because you know there there are two things that come into notions that we often forget because of the daily, um, you know, the daily routines. As people and as as journalists, we often forget that our perception of the world is mainly media. We, we don't know what's happening, you know, in another city from our own country if we do not hear it on the news, if we do not hear it, you know, you know someone's sharing with you a link, someone sharing um, a radio uh, capsule or a podcast. Like, we are so ingrained, our perception of the world is so ingrained to what we consume. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think many people understand that. We take it for granted. We don't ask. I mean, that's why media literacy is so important. <laughs> I just did a recent webinar about it because it's like we don't often ask ourselves who said that information? Who is saying that? What is the purpose behind that information? What is the narrative, the discourses, the kind of representations that they are portraying? to ourselves on X or Y kind of topic. We don't ask ourselves that. We just consume and we're like, okay, next next story or let me watch this movie or let me, you know, change the channel. But we do not wonder why they are sharing this to us. How are we reacting to that information? We feel overwhelmed with this COVID-19 pandemic and we feel like, oh my God, like I feel overwhelmed. This is a lot. This is everything's negative. But we, we just make judgment about this, you know, this kind of content. But we do not take responsibility on why we are consuming that kind of content. And you could say to me, yes, Natalia, because I want to be well informed, like you were saying before, Hannah. Um, yeah, we can be well informed, but we also need to place ourselves limits and understand that there are patterns and that these are media industries and they have interests. They have economic interests, they have ideological interests, and they want to instill it upon us. What are we doing about it is another question. Mm -hmm. And as journalists, we 
you know, once we enter these media outlets, we don't question that. And now more than ever, I'm very, very mindful. I have a very small um, team of volunteers working with uh, Lumina at this point because we are starting from scratch. Um, and one of the things that I found is like, I don't want to do fast-paced journalism. I want to work on the story. I want you to fall in love with what you are working on. And I want you to deliver a good amount of information. Mm. And yes, we can talk about the negativity and we can talk about like how this is dehumanizing us. One of the things um, after the around 1980s, 1990s, uh, with all the co ethnic conflicts that were, um, you know, um, covering the news, for example, the Bosnian War was considered the first media war, although the Vietnam War was for the United States. Bosnia was the, um, the mediatic war because what happened in Bosnia was unprecedented at that point. We're not talking about inviting, you know, your media outlets from your own country, like what happens in the United States, like in these field trips with the army to go to the war of Afghanistan, to be embedded in, you know, the Iraqi uh, war, you know, with um, the U.S. Uh, army, you know, journalists that are embedded with the U U.S. army that get censored if the army do, do not like what they want to write about. Um, that happened at the beginning of these wars. Some may say that it is still happening, but it was a phenomenon specifically in 2001-2003. What happened with the, with the Bosnian war is that every side of the conflict Bosnians, Serbs, Croatians, Kosovians, um, every side of the conflict invited people over, invited journalists over from different parts of the world. And they did not censor it. It was like, we want you to report what's happening on the ground because, you know, every uh, uh, rebel group or every part of the conflict um, wanted their story to be told, regardless of, you know, the outcome for the journalists of how or how the world will see the, the, the war. And there are many films about it, but in, in during those times, um, there was this book by Susan, Susan Sontag. She wrote this book called the, Regarding the Pain of Others. And she started seeing that the more that we were exposed to, you know, uh, dramatic pictures of, you know, people being killed on the ground, people being, um, you know, uh, bombs exploding, etc., the more that we saw them as objects. We, we lost feeling and we lost the connection. And also it created a distance between our reality and what was happening in Bosnia, which was including something that Anne-Marie um, Anne Culver um, in Syria, uh, this uh, war correspondent was also um, saying before she was killed. It's like, no matter how many stories about the Syrian war we are covering, you still do not care. You still do not do anything to intervene, which also brings to light another conversation, which is, you know, the lack 
of power or the lack of will of international organizations, institutions, and even foreign policies from states to intervene in other people's uh, affairs. Like, for example, all these uh, legal instruments for um, those that study international law, you know, like the responsibility to protect after Kosovo, that was a very, very important document, which was then followed by um, some other instruments. But that was after experiencing gruesome accounts from Rwanda and Bosnia, why Bosnia was receiving intervention and the Rwandan genocide wasn't. And the same goes with Cambodia. Like, who are the people in these foreign policy spheres deciding whose lives matter most and who do not? I mean, media, though it is faulty and though it is, you know, it has become this uh, vacuum of negativity in some sense in the way it covers conflict, he has been able to showcase those cracks. I think we we tend to judge media so harshly by what they are saying that we do not ever wonder what is it that they are not saying. And I think that is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's like... Uh, I mean, that's what I woke up to as well. Working in this documentary library was just the amount of (laughs) situations across the world that I had never even heard of because they were clearly not the media um, prime focus. So it was not what most of us were hearing about at the time. But yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, I think this is, so beautiful to just learn like what you are rooted in and like where you have come from like what you've explored and what um you can clearly see because I relate so much to you I think we're both uh so rooted in like knowing the problems and knowing what really needs to change and also with that knowledge choosing to present more or present something different or to work like you shared with Lumina like uh, falling in love with certain stories and sharing more and I I'm really grateful I became so rooted in sort of history like deep history and realizing how far back it goes that our knowledge has been warped and uh, disconnected from that there is more going on in in our history and in our sort of stories and how much this influences uh, the way we see ourselves. I think I can now come to kind of all media and always take a sort of distance and think and think really like where is this coming from and who is like I don't take it so um, literally or full on. Um, but that's been really because I've been sort of rooted in that work and just seeing again and again and again like wow like how is this not talked about like in in universities even and in school and then in media and then you know the ripple effect of all those things and and again just (laughs) simply just seeing who's been in charge of the knowledge um typically white men for a long time uh controlling the sort of media output and and also um the academic output 
Yeah, but controlling, you know, what is more scary about this all is that they're not controlling the narrative for, you know, to inform us. It's to continue expanding violence. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we have come to, as a society, understand what a powerful statement it is to see media as a violent weapon. Mm-hmm. And we often do not understand it because we often confuse conflict with violence. Like conflict is, you know, part of human nature. You you want to drink coffee and then your partner wants to drink tea. Like what are you going to make? Coffee or tea? Like that's a conflict in itself. But you, the way that you resolve the conflict, it could be through violence or it could be through nonviolence or different other measures, right? Um, the, the problem is that media is, has become this tool for, you know, capitalism, for, you know, idealis, ideals, etc. that it has forgotten what the root cause of the conflict is. It has reported its symptoms through the lenses of violence and it has promoted more violence. And I, I think that's the sad part about it. Um, just recently, I watched um, in Netflix this uh, movie uh, made from, you know, the, the story of Sergio de Mello, who was a UN representative uh, worldwide in terms of um, um, resolution, conflict resolution. Um, he was in East Timor um, and in other different areas of the world, but he was killed in 2003, um, just at the beginning of the war on Iraq. And one of the things that is very clear, and he kept on repeating on the movie, <laughs> I mean, of course, it's an, an interpretation of his life, but one of the things that he kept repeating is that how simple conflicts can be solved is people just talk to each other. Mm-hmm. We have lost our what what makes us human, and I'm I'm telling you this, and I I feel so sad talking to you about this, and um, I I really want to fix this. I just you know it takes time and ways to figure out you know how to best do it, right? Mm-hmm. But it starts from understanding that for example one of the things that seems in in this movie that I felt very powerful it was very simple but very powerful I was you know he was sitting down I think with the president of the of the Philippines and um, he was saying like you know the rebels in East Timor want uh, the Philippines or Indonesia I do not recall right now um, is in the area and he was like, they only want you to apologize. That's what they want. They don't want your money. They don't want resources. They don't want anything. They, they just want to be recognized as its own people. And they just want your, your you know, you asking them for forgiveness. And the president in of this country, and I still do not recall which, but he was saying... No, I cannot. It's not so simple. And then he said, yes, it is. That's what they want. They don't want a war. <laughs> they don't want to engage, you know, into more killing. They, they just want you to, you know, say, I'm sorry for what we did to you. That's it. 
as simple as saying no, but because that implies, you know, political implications, I could lose a vote, I could lose, you know, like many other interests that, you know, can chime in, which if you, you, if you take that scene, you can figure out other, you know, similarities between what's happening in, with the Myanmar and um, the, the, ran, the, uh, the community at the north, um, the Ramesha, the, you, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know the pronunciation, but I can see the spelling in my mind. Yeah, it's with R. <laughs> no, it's R. Um, the same happens with India and the and the Muslims. The same happen. Like once you go to the root of what the conflict is, you know, the lack of recognition, the lack of you know understanding, the desire to build bridges, but the other person that doesn't want. It's like conflicts can be solved easily. It's just the violence part that is you know preventing that to happen and um not to extend it anymore i i just think that we need new kind of journalism we need to have different ways of seeing the world and understanding that our words matter but Mm -hmm. our actions matter more it's not what you say it's what you do and now that i'm launching launching this magazine I feel like this responsibility of not take any story for granted and not take any interview you know like very lightweight because I know that there are people that will benefit from this that people that will have their lives changed even if it's like a small blog even if it's not you know like a huge media outlet you don't know how beautiful i mean you probably have known with the podcast how beautiful it is to receive just a small message from someone that say hey i heard your episode it was wonderful thank you for your work sana thank you for the work that you do even if it's just one person that listens to it even if it's just one person that feels heard that feels seen that feels valued that in itself is a win we need to figure out a way that we can communicate better that we can see each other as people and that we can work towards a win-win scenario for all that's it (laughs) yeah (laughs) no it's so true and i it's um yeah it's my whole driving force for creating salty gathering as a media platform because i wanted to create a world where you can you can enter into like I'm looking for it all the time online like where can I go and learn about the world but not also be engaged in this um yeah cycles of stories that I don't even yeah connect with and and just to bring this like home for the listener as well because I mean of course we all are aware of the news and global events but sometimes I can also feel quite abstract and out you know out in the world somewhere but this influences everything it influences our movements like I see it in feminism in uh, pretty much all the human rights movements we can without realizing still enter into this warlike mentality and the problem is when we enter into a warlike mentality is that someone always loses and we also, without realizing, feeding this energy, like 
this um, intensity, this a lot of activists become violent and become uh, kind of lose themselves. And we can forget what we're actually fighting for, which is the beauty and the peace. And I think what is so powerful and why uh, someone like you is so needed, Natalia, is that because you come from this background and you are actually fully immersed in the spiritual, conscious, beautiful space also. You're fully uh, connected in all realms. And what I think, what I began to realize as I sort of explored those worlds and started, you know, sharing women's circles and would go to all these beautiful events where, um, you know, people sharing yoga and meditation and beautiful words and and really really the the human interaction the the amount of organizations the amount of projects the amount of people doing beautiful work out in the world from the ground up you might not see it in the media space but there is a huge huge movement that has risen up of just this human connection and uh you know healing and and emotional uh trauma work and all these things um but what sometimes i would realize is that those people who have you know sometimes the best uh beautiful ideas wisdom things to share with the world would feel like they had to deny completely the media space or the news or or these bigger issues it's like it feels like oh I don't really understand that space and this is something I would love to touch into as well because uh, we're both working with money right now in the economic space and, and exploring how we can also be part of shifting that uh, conversation personally and then also collectively because I think we both have felt like we've seen enough and we understand enough of the systems and of the way things are in the collective. But we've also done enough of this deeper work, which is ongoing all the time, of inner work and healing and spiritual connection and emotional um, like transformation that we understand how there's this connection and this ripple effect. And actually, we need more and more of these light workers, these beautiful people, to uh, take up space base in the world to be seen and to be heard and to be valued alongside um if not you know taking over this uh this warlike mentality and this destructive mentality that can feel so demoralizing debilitating it can just feel so much like this is the way it is governments in control media and, and, and these voices and this you know even just the language that is used that just blocks out so many people because we don't understand it unless we studied it or we um you know really want to become engaged in news all the time but yeah i I would love to hear from like what point you kind of really entered into this sort of spiritual uh, conscious awareness or if it was with you the whole time or what sort of, um, yeah, really shifted for you with that. Mm. It's a very hard question to answer um, <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's just I do understand the moment that I started taking it more you know, like as a road, like I recognize that it is a road. Um, I, 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 I do not recall my young years, <laughs> my childhood years, 
being, um, you know, like spiritual as in, you know, like connecting and manifesting and all that. Like, I do remember, I mean, I was raised Catholic in a, you know, a study also in a, a high school that it was full Catholic. We had like religion classes. We needed to go to mass every week. I mean, it was very, very heavy, but I did not build Although I had all this knowledge of the Bible and knowledge of God and all that, I did not have a relationship with it. And I do feel like, I mean, I come from a very poor family in Puerto Rico, in Rio Grande. Um, that's my um, hometown. And um, I lived in the woods kind of <laughs> near El Yunque, which is like the Federal Reserve uh, and the Federal uh, Forest, uh, a specific forest. I was very connected to nature because I was living there. And I always felt like whenever I was in nature, I could be myself. Because there's no people. <laughs> it's very simple way of feeling, you know, enlightenment when you're like in those spaces and you just talk to the trees and you feel that energy and that. And you kind of lose it when you're in a city landscape. Um, there are fewer spaces where you can breathe fresh air, when you can connect to Mother Nature and such. But when you can also feel inspired and also feel like you're one with God and um, I, I mean I had during my journalistic career once I started um, you know studying journalism and working as an adult um, I, I kind of shifted I did not take it as serious as before because I was you know pushed down the religion all the weeks of my life until you know you reach university and you don't have to go to church every Sunday or every week because that's not part of you know the academics or that's not part of your daily life anymore unless you take that decision I did not find that I needed it I did pray but I was not building a relationship with it. And what changed me, what changed things for me was, um, there were two moments, I think. My first breakup was very hard for me to handle and I kind of prayed my tears away and, you know, um, lived in a very dark, uh, clouded um, mind space and emotional um, wait um, for over four years of my life from when I was 22 until I was 26 and then when I moved to Mexico and I started reporting as a freelancer um, you know t topics of gender violence etc it wasn't until I saw myself in a, fa a mirror a bathroom mirror in um, Guatemala City when I was covering um, the femicides of 43 girls um, that were killed in a fire in uh, San Jose de Pinula, Guatemala, that I saw myself crumbling. I saw my, my reflection on the mirror and I immediately had like this view. If I continue this life as a freelance war reporter, conflict reporter or violence reporter, um, I would end up dead. I, my life, I would not have joy in my life. Like, this is it you have a decision to make and what what happened after that story 
you know, many media outlets did not want me to run it because it was too local, because, you know, Guatemalan women were not as important as European women. Like there were other things that maybe in another <laughs> time we will discuss, but it was when I was experiencing post-stress traumatic disorder after that specific story that I had to kneel down and I kind of gave up. I gave up my resistance to something different. My resistance to being held, to being loved, to being um, enlightened, to to connecting with the universe, to connecting with archangels, to connecting with Reiki, with different therapists. I even became a certified um, meditation teacher with Mujer, Mujer Holística. And that road, I, I embraced it because I needed to do some healing. I could not anymore carry the burden of living my life without a spirituality. I could not live it. And just to a couple of days going to the park and connecting with a tree. No, I could not do it anymore. I, I needed to incorporate it every day of my life from then on. And um, I mean, I had many masters along the way and I've learned from, you know, different, from archangel, angelic therapy, to Reiki, to uh, crystal therapy, to constellations, to um, theta healing. I also became a certified uh, theta healer. Um, I started working on my mind, but I also started opening up my soul to be and to understand how quantum physics work and how the inside, you know, matches the outside and how you always create your reality. You have that, um, how is it, that, that, that um, beautiful... Um, Everybody has that potential uh, ability. But I wasn't so awoke to that perception. And I mean, if I look back, I always was a bit stubborn. <laughs> Whenever I wanted to do something, I did it. I did not think about if, you know, I did not doubt it myself. When I started engaging in spirituality, I started experiencing doubts. Was it my ego wanting to do things or was it my soul? Was this the best thing that's going to push me forward? Or is this something that I'm doing because I'm fearful of something? And these are very scary questions that we do sometimes do not want to answer. We just want to live on the, you know, let's go right, you know. And um, when, when I started thinking about how to incorporate that spiritual work to my work on the ground, you know, with gender violence. Back then, I, I was uh, doing my uh, third documentary project, Ser Mujer en Latin America, which was, you know, recollecting more than 700 testimonials from women in 18 countries on gender-based violence and gender peace. When I started that documentary in June 2017, I was already starting this road on spirituality, but I started th thinking, what if I 
start doing this documentary and I get lost in the process and it becomes another vacuum. And um, I started engaging in this, you know, women empowerment um, way of a process for myself. I did not only want to empower other women, I wanted to understand how it meant for me to see myself as a subject as well, to see myself as a child of the universe. I was never considering myself a body person because when I mean I was so passionate about journalism I was so brain brainwashed that I wanted and I dove in into the whole rhetoric like oh to be a very a very good journalist you have to be neutral you do not you you cannot have feelings for subjects you cannot um you know uh, have a life because you know you have to be on call 24 7 because news do not wait if you want to make it in the journalistic industry once I broke that barrier when I you know became a freelancer when I started experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder and my editors of several organizations did not care about my mental state. I mean, they didn't have to, but they didn't even care to reach out. I started thinking, hey, I need this journey to be mindful for me. It needs to be something that I do for me as well. I cannot connect with other women and talk about Let's, you know, eradicate gender-based violence. I cannot empower, you know, women in the entrepreneurship industry. I cannot interview other women if I do not consider myself a woman. If I cannot see myself as a sentient being sharing this time, this experience with you. And um, I came to understand, you know, and experience conflicts with that with my previous knowledge of journalism, you know, because then how much are you feeling and instilling your point of view to a story that you should not, you know, um, experience it so deeply. But it, but then figuring out if this is my own media outlet, would it matter? Would it matter? <laughs> I mean, would it matter? I mean, it, it comes more from... I mean, I do have all this knowledge. I'm not, you know, creating propaganda. But at the same time, it's like I want to write stories that matter, not write nonsense that do not have any connection to other people's views. Um, so, yeah, to answer that question right now, that's my journey. Like the moment that I started seeing myself as a woman, the, more, the moment that I started, you know, connecting the dots <laughs> and connecting that my work needed more spirituality, more soul, the more that I stopped them relying on, um, how is it? That The more that I started relying on following the trend or following the rhythm of what journalism or good journalism should take. It's like, if a story takes me two weeks, it takes me two weeks, but it's going to be a very good story. Mm. And it was a whole reshifting of my own paradigms of what I learned. I came from working in a top news agency for more than two years, covering the English-speaking and the French-speaking Caribbean, writing four or five stories a day for almost six days per week. 
without any vacation days, to moments and months and even years of not touching anything, of not writing a word. And now I do not take it any day that I write for Lumina or for that I do my work with Ser Mujer, my documentary project. I do not take it for granted. I know I'm very mindful of the topics that I select. I'm very mindful of the interviews that I do. And I always ask, what is this going to give to whoever is listening, to whoever needs answers? Would they find some answers here? And those answers do not have to be so complicated, like, you know, like this formula on economics of what the world is going to be in 2021 after the COVID-19. Like, sometimes people want something as simple as hope. Yes, yes. And uh, throughout this conversation, I just keep the name of um, my project for women who want to change the world. I it's just kept coming to me so strongly because this is it. This is how we actually, uh, you know, change the world. And I, yeah, I'm so excited to share that me and Natalia have begun collaborating on co-creating an online event. It was going to be an in-person event in Mexico City, but uh, really rooted in in money and economics and world health and wealth sort of being um, simultaneous, like a, as a sort of weaving understanding. And what I love to really just talk about is that we can really change the way we do things. And I think at this time, we are actually required to question everything. So just a beautiful example of this is... Um, well, with, with Salty Gathering, with the first gathering, I was like, you know, I, I want to bring women together around this research, around meeting these medicine women, learning about this culture in a deeper way. I want to also connect and to heal and to learn from one another. And I'd learned so much from circle work of how we all are here to bring something and we all are worthy and we all have something to say and so this concept of a bigger gathering where actually we all co-create it became this kind of experiment like could this work because typically we go to a festival a retreat uh, a conference an event and you're a passive guest you've paid for a ticket and then you're just there and you're following uh, the leader or you know the lineup and you're just taking it in and uh, this shift in like, no, we're actually here to to show up and co-create an experience. It, it's it's radical in its simplicity because it's like you realize, wait there, I haven't done this my whole life. I've been in school where I was told what to do. Then I went to a job and I was told what to do. And the media tells me what to think. And, you know, we don't realize <laughs> how much our power has been taken away. And this is a huge conversation within this podcast. I always say within the personal empowerment space, it's always amazing to me, like how disempowering it can be because we're still listening to a coach or we're still listening you know someone we're still in some ways there can still be this dynamic uh so we we're really redesigning this concept with this online event as well like how can we actually come together and all contribute and learn and so that we, we invite guests but they're also there learning and and sharing in a deeper way and um i'm really excited to to face and and to uh, move with this topic of money and finance because it's 
a huge topic and I, I, again it's like so empowering to know that we can redesign our economy in the way our systems work for us rooted in our values and I I believe deeply that women um, it's our time to show up you know this is called the Aquarian age um, in sort of new age um, rhetoric and it's like this understanding that it's now time not for women to take over for there to be a balance and we don't even understand what that balance is because we are so <laughs> conditioned from within like we don't understand like we can understand maybe intellectually patriarchy or male dominance but we don't realize how those energies actually move through us <laughs> and how it still changes you know it still operates the way we do things out in the world so yeah I'm excited we've been talking a lot about how we can design this online event and of course you've heard me on this podcast talk about the journey that I'm I'm then sort of guiding and, and kind of want to be on myself for three months to kind of also do yeah this in a deeper exploration of like okay what is our internal experience with money and how can we um, be in an abundance mindset be in this magnetic you know beautiful um, vibration of like yeah we can manifest and so on but be rooted and deeply um I think walking in a stronger way because once again the spiritual conscious space is sometimes become a little bit superficial it's become a little bit disconnected from very real life inequality and real life disparity and not really looking at the influences that are still there really you know influencing our whole society and um yeah I just want to say I'm so excited that we are really leaning into this topic and not afraid to look out across the world and how it could shift and yeah, I would love to pass it to you, Natalia, if you have anything to share on this topic. But in general, I would love to hear really your vision. And like if you could imagine <laughs> the world that we could step into, um, what it would look like. You know, um, that's another hard question that I, I simply do not have like a a specific answer I think that's something that we will know more once we continue this road for creating this event um, I do feel two things the first is that we often underestimate our potential and our capability to imagine new worlds um, we fear that we are inadequate of creating something as big as an economy or a just world or, you know, gender equity, etc., or social justice programs, because we fear that it would not be enough or that we will fail or someone may be harmed in the process. Um, so I, I, I do feel like what we are building and proposing with this event we are still doing it, I mean, we are creating it, but with another process. We both are shifting and experiencing our own processes, internal processes on how can we build a space where others can also do the same and be encouraged to do the same. And when we can connect from an authentic 
and real place. And from that authentic place, figure out ideas on how to move and how to be moving forward. And um, I often think, and for the listeners of this podcast, I, I, I do think that we need to move past the mindset of money um, as it's only synonym of wealth. Wealth is much more than money. Money is a currency, it's an energy, has its own soul. <laughs> Some of us already have found um, it has its own reason of being. Everything that we do, even the soul seed gathering, even Lumina, every entrepreneurship idea has a soul. It has a purpose to be here. Um, so what I guess I want to highlight with this van and, and in this process of building it is to figure out what's the intersection between global health and global wealth. How can we reshift the notion of wealth, which is more than just money, which is also access to resources, which is also uh, as, uh, connected to prosperity, not only of the material world, but also of the spiritual world. And how can we connect that also with the health of our society, of the health of our culture? Um, we have been so toxified. We need a detox of everything that we have learned. And we need spaces to talk to each other, to build bridges. And yes, to have the hard conversations of how are we gonna move forward? Even if we don't like what other people think about, even if we do not agree, we still need both or all of the people to sit down and have the hard conversations because talking is how we understand each other. It's not through violence, it's not through weapons, it's not through oppression or know power dynamics which are also part of the uh, patriarchal system and the way it continues building you know loopholes uh, for us to fall whenever we think that we are progressing it continues weaving weaving us in um, so I think what we are building with this um, festival this uh, small event is the opportunity to engage in a peer kind of conversation rather than we creating this hierarchical of, oh, these are the speakers, these are the only people that know the answers. It's like, what if we all can have answers? What if we can build a roadmap of actions? What if we take the moment to explore within ourselves what's missing for our society rather than, no, that's, I read it on the textbook. No, I read it because X, Y guru said that that's what we needed to do or X, Y professor is the only one that knows. No, what if what our soul what if we let our soul speak? What if our, we let our own authentic truth to speak out and show up with 
what we came here to do. At the beginning of this episode, you asked me about my mission. I often was steering away from that. I was, you know, saying it sometimes and other times I was, you know, like trying to put a lot of, uh, a lot of other layers to make it more interesting, to make it more appealing, to make it more attractive. What I've came to understand is that everybody has a mission. Everybody has some talent that they want to give to the world or that they came here to do and only them can do it that way. Our job maybe or our, our task or the invitation that I feel is necessary in these times is that are we living according to our best abilities? Are we recognizing that in our talent, in our hidden truth, there is power? Are we recognizing that Can we speak from that place to one another without feeling intimidated or without feeling uh, envious of, oh, but that person is better at, you know, um, uh, moving people or that person is better at writing a story or that person is better at organizing stuff and I'm bad at that. But what are you good at? <laughs> I mean, instead of leaving wealth as what can I acquire, is that who can you be? Who are you? And what are you here to give to this world? Can we make an economy based on that? Of us living to our best of our abilities, whatever it is. I think that's it. <laughs> oh, I love it. No, I love it. I was just like letting that sink in. I feel, oh, I feel so much power, beauty, love, really deep empowerment, uh, real change. I feel so much possibility. And like you said, we're, we'll be keeping it small. So if you are interested, uh, like re register your interest with us as soon as possible. We'll have information soon up we're, we're still sort of dreaming it into being and I I, I definitely want to kind of leave it with that just recognizing that you probably hit in this whole conversation we we've maybe you're just waking up to how much we've been influenced by certain narratives and ways of receiving information likely our whole lives even again if we've disconnected from news it's still influenced us so First of all, recognizing that and that we've all been conditioned, societally conditioned and in school and so forth. And to recognize then that there has been this war on the imagination. And I, I love Adrienne Marie Brown. She she expressed it like that, a war on the imagination. And I don't want to continue the warlike uh, vocabulary. But uh, when we recognize that, it's like okay, I don't need to be in war by, you know, bringing different changes of ideas and, and visions so much for the world, but gaining a little bit of strength in idealism of peace, of equality, of um, beautiful ways that we can come together. And I, that's why I'm, I'm also so honored to work with indigenous communities because for them... <laughs> they don't see themselves necessarily as as in poverty it's a very novel concept but they're often classified as such um 
especially when there has been attacks on their land and, and, and for them it has become a real you know threat to their way of life. But I do see um, when we have like communities, for example, like the Kogi that have been in Colombia relatively untouched. I mean, they still are influenced by colonialism and, and outsiders, but relatively untouched. And there is this possibility for true wealth of community, of knowledge, of beauty, of, you know, all this ancestral traditions really there where people look after one another. No one is feeling lacking. It's this true um, abundance and wealth and knowledge. And um, again, like, I just find it so powerful whenever like I'm reminded that, you know, they see themselves as our elders like there are elder brothers and sisters and when we see it through their eyes it changes the whole entire like viewpoint of the world the way we've like had this narrative of us being the ones who can always help and save others <laughs> um and realizing yeah once again this uh this war in the imagination this influence that we've all had can be shifted and we get to all be part of that you the listener get to be part of that your story your artwork your writing your you know passion for change whatever it is your community project the way you mother the way you are a sister you know a brother who you know whoever you are you are valuable and your voice is needed you deserve to be seen. You deserve to be part of this conversation. And so I really do hope you allow that to sink in. And yeah, Natalia, I'm just, I'm so honored to know you. And it, I, I'm even more touched and, and honored to know you after this conversation. And uh, yeah, I want to thank you so much and just ask you what you'd like to any like last words you'd like to leave with anyone and where people can find you best i'll link it of course all below um yeah no i want to thank you hannah also for allowing me to work with you to learn more about your work but also to grow alongside you um i don't feel like we women collaborate and grow together like we need more spaces to do so um and um i feel also very blessed to have found you um i felt this intuitive um not like that project is amazing i need to reach out i need to figure out like and um you know i'm amazed of everything that we have you know endured and learned and and you know, growth and lift too. And I can't wait until we can see each other in person because everything <laughs> we have done is via Zoom or via Google Hangout and it's very virtual. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I can't wait until we see each other in flesh and can create maybe something together in person or just have a chat and drink some tea and, you know, uh, share the same time and the same space um, that would be amazing and for everybody that's listening to this I really invite you to find those relationships that matter and cultivate those relationships that's true wealth that's true 
truly the road for us to feel healthy, to feel valued, to feel loved. And um, we should not take it for granted. And if we do not have it, maybe we need to cultivate it. Um, So I'm so excited for everything that we're building together. I invite uh, our listeners to, you know, uh, learn more about every story that we are creating with Soul Seek Gathering with Lumina. Um, they can reach out at you know the magazine Lumina dot um, dot com. I will uh, send Hannah the link. And if you're interested in gender based violence or peace violence, gender peace, um, I invite you to check with uh, my um, work in nataliabonilla dot org. Um, which is more focused on how can we deconstruct uh, gender-based violence, but at the international level. Um, so that's it. Thank you so much, Hannah, for inviting me. Mm, thank you so much. And yes, I can't wait for the moment we can <laughs> be together in person, especially through this quarantine that's become such a real deep desire of mine to, to be again in in real life connection and and with <laughs> all of life. you all of you <laughs> listeners also I uh, like Natalia shared like all of your messages I say it pretty much every week but they really do touch me and I know if you've been listening some of you to every single episode um, I know we are also meant to meet in person and I look forward to that day when we can gather and connect and I love hearing from you so please again feel free to reach out share what you're working on what you're going through I'm I'm just so honored uh, sending so much love to wherever you are in the world and thank you again Natalia